IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine, and I've also edited several anthologies, such as Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, which comes out in February, and Armored, which comes out in March. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Skull-Faced Boy, about an intelligent zombie who organizes hordes of mindless zombies into an unstoppable army. The story was just reprinted in the young adult anthology Z Zombie Stories, which also features fiction by Kelly Link, Catherine Valenti, Jonathan Mayberry, and others. And our guest today is Jim Butcher. He's the author of the best-selling Dresden Files series, about a modern-day wizard private eye named Harry Dresden. The series was adapted into a TV show, which ran for one season on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, Jim is also the author of the Codex Alera series, about a lost Roman legion in a fantasy world. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jim Butcher. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, okay, so first of all, you know, it's basically impossible to say anything about your most recent Dresden book without totally spoiling the ending of the previous one. Is that something that concerns you at all, and how have you handled that while promoting the new book? Um, no, not really. It's really it's gotten around so much now that I don't, I'm not too worried about spoilers. Plus, as the writer, I'm always kind of focused on the next book. So, you know, what happened uh, a couple of books ago, uh, what Harry get shot and all was, uh, I mean, it's it, it, it's way far in the past for me, maybe even more so than for the reader. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already busy working on the next on the book, you know, two books down the line from that one. So, uh, so how did fans react to the ending of Changes, and were there any particularly extreme reactions? <laughs> yeah, they were really upset. Uh, or at least some of them were. Uh, some of them were upset in a good way, and some of them were, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're ending the series. There was everything from from I really love the way that ended to you've got to be kidding me I'll never read anything you do ever again. Um, the you know the the whole the whole ending of the, of the book, you know Dresden getting shot, falling into a lake, seeing a light, and that's the end of the book. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the series is over. And I'm telling them, over? Are you kidding? My kid just started going to college. <laughs> I can't end the series yet. <laughs> so how did the Dresden Files series come about in the first place? Oh gosh, uh, it came about as a result of me telling my writing teacher, um, I wanted to prove to her how wrong she was about, um, about her various um, theories on, on how to write novels. Uh, and, and she'd been giving me very good advice for, for a couple of years and I, I'd been ignoring her, uh, because I knew better on account of, um, I had a degree in English literature, um, whereas she had merely published 40 novels. Um, one semester, I finally decided, okay, you know what? I'm going to do everything she says. I'm going to be her good little writing monkey. I'm going to do absolutely everything uh, she wants, fill out all these little forms for her, yeah, do the little worksheets, and she'll see what awful crap comes out of that kind of writing process. And I wrote Stormfront, the first book of the Dungeon File. Uh, and so how'd you come up with the character of Bob the Skull? Uh, Bob the Skull was an inside joke between me and my teacher. Uh, we, I had written the first chapter, and, and she had read it, and it was a conference course. And she had read it, and uh, she says, okay, I think this is good. What happens next? And, and I, I'm telling her about how I want to give Dresden this lab assistant uh, kind of figure, kind of character, who's going to be there to sort of help him with the really super technical magical stuff. 
you know, Dresden can explain all the basic magical stuff to the cops because uh, you know that that was that's the idea. That's how you get information to the reader. Uh, is you have somebody ask questions in the story, and then you know you have a character answer them, and then you know what's going on. But uh, I wanted to have another character who Dresden, Dresden would go to to ask questions, and then I'm telling her about this lab assistant character. She says, "All right, that's fine. Uh, we can use that as long as you don't make him a talking head," which is which is. Uh, a crack term for the character who just shows up and spews information and then goes away. Uh, a lot of times, you would you would see characters like that in the old science fiction movies, where some guy would 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 they go to consult the scientist and he tell he was a scientist because he had a white lab coat on. He would say, "Well, as you know, Bob, you know the mating the mating cycle of the average ant." And it's like, well, but if Bob knows, uh, uh, then how come he, the guy is explaining it to him? Uh, so that's why he's a talking head character. So I, I created a literal talking head named Bob, and uh, uh, and that's you know, and that's how I put them together. You know, I, I remember my teacher reading uh, his first appearance in in, in the book, and she kind of looks up at me and raises one eyebrow and says, "You think you're funny, don't you?" <laughs> okay, so you know, one of your other recent books was a collection of Dresden short stories entitled "Side Jobs." Uh, what gave you the the idea to write those stories? Um, I needed money. Um, <laughs> I was I, I I first got asked to, invited to an anthology. Uh, I think maybe I just gotten done with Death Masks. I think was about the right time for it. And um, the the I mean I still wasn't making a whole lot of money on the books. It was it was a, a pretty good part time job. And uh, uh, we had just moved, and uh, uh, I had just gotten the Alera books going, and I still needed more money and and uh, to to kind of help us with with several expenses and bills. And um, so I got an invitation. They said, hey, do you want to write for money? And I said, yes, I want to write for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I, I started penning things for these anthologies. And uh, now I'm to a point where I don't need to do that to to really upgrade my, my income any. But uh, I still give invitations. And the, and the short stories are they're a good challenge for me because they're very diff- difficult for me to write. So uh, I just kept writing and writing. And I realized, hey, I've almost got enough for a collection here. Uh, and if I, if, if I add you know, a, a kind of novella went to it. We could actually do a collection. And plus, I wanted to get all the stories into one book so that so that the fans of the series wouldn't have to necessarily go out and buy, you know, a dozen, a half dozen other anthologies to to collect all the short stories. Could you, what, what were some of those anthologies and did the themes uh, maybe suggest ideas that you never would have come up with on your own? Oh, yeah, because they would, I mean, they have a theme like, uh, you know, my big pet supernatural wedding. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll write a wedding theme short story. That, that seems easy enough. And, and the next one is my big pet supernatural honeymoon. And it's like, okay, I got to come up with a, some kind of honeymoon story. And, and then it was during that time that I, that I watched some show on some special on History Channel where they, they gave, they, they talked about the original meaning of honeymoon, which was a, a, a Viking thing where you would go out with, you, know, you would take your wife out for, four weeks and vanish with a lot of mead and, and, and party with your wife. And I said, okay, we can do some mead things. And then, you know, one of them was called strange brew. It's like, okay, I got to have somebody mess around with the beer and, and, and you know, like that. And Starcrossed lovers was another one, except I think they changed the, they, I think they changed the title, the songs of love and death. Uh, but that was okay. Cause my story still fit anyway. Okay. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the origins of your uh, Codex Alera series? Codex Alera, I got started on on a bet, literally. Uh, I was on this. Uh, I think it was in uh, about 19. It was in 1999. And I was on the Del Rey Writers Workshop list. Uh, uh, 
the Delray Online Writers Workshop, uh, which was a, an email list where folks would write stuff and they would get critiqued by uh, uh, by other writers. It was all aspiring writers that were there. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we had gotten into a discussion on StoryCraft, and one side of, this, of the discussion was kind of holding up uh, the holy idea as being the thing you really need for a story. You need a really great idea. And if you have a really great idea, then, then really, no matter how bad a writer you are, you're still going to have a, a really good book come out of it. Uh, and uh, they and they were using uh, Jurassic Park as an example. Even if you don't write well, if it's a great enough idea, you know, re-engineering dinosaurs, then, then that's going to be awesome. And the other side of the argument, which was the side I was on, was the it doesn't matter how tired and old the idea is if you can do the if you can do it well uh you're going to have a successful book and uh and then for you know on our side of the argument I was holding up the uh you know look at how many how many versions different versions of Romeo and Juliet have we seen you know that are still good and and you know and so the discussion waged back and forth and it was one of those things where you hit the reply button and then the caps lock key and started typing mm-hmm. uh uh, I mean, because it was all of us just a bunch of wannabe writers who were who were just flame warring one another continuously, and finally it came down to to there was some guy on the other side of it uh, who's who's like, all right, you, if you think it's so easy, I'd like I'd like to see you write a book with, with tired ideas and see how well they do. And I'd like, I, why don't you let me give you a bad idea and we'll see what kind of good, of a good mm-hmm. book you can write out of it? And me being young and cocky and and aspiring writer on you know internet loudmouth like everybody else that was there. Uh, said, no, you know what? Why don't you give me two terrible ideas and I'll use them both? So the guy says, all right. And he says, okay, first terrible idea. Let's see. Um, uh, you know what? I am tired of Lost Roman Legions. I am so sick of the Lost Roman Legion stories. All the Lost Roman Legions should have been found by now. You go ahead and, and Lost Roman Legion, that's, that's, that's title one. Or that's bad idea one. And I'm like, okay. And bad idea number two? And he says, Pokemon. I am so <laughs> tired of Pokemon. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll do that. And so uh, I took Lost Roman Legion and Pokemon, and I went and researched Lost Roman the Lost Roman Legion, uh, which is the Ninth Hibernia Legion, which is what uh, the one everybody is talking about when you talk about Lost Roman Legions, uh, who apparently marched into a thunderstorm and didn't march up the other side. But uh, I said, okay, so we've got this Lost Roman Legion. I figured out well, about half of them are, are, are Roman citizens, about half of them are German mercenaries. And then they've got their camp followers with them, and that's actually that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good colony level, uh, uh, you know. If you're gonna send somebody somewhere and 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 tell them, hey, start a society, that's a good way to do it. Uh, and then I I said, okay, so we've got this legion, where do they go? Well, obviously, land of the Pokemon, and uh, uh, went and researched where Pokemon came from, and you know, Pokemon itself is actually a combination of of, of two ideas, uh, one of which is uh, Shinto, the the Shinto religion, where uh, spirits of the, of the divine live in all natural things, and and that you'd better give them respect. And uh, then they they combine that with uh, with professional wrestling, and that's where they got Pokemon. But I said, okay, look, we'll 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 have this we'll have this land where these spirits of the divine live inside everything, but we can't call them Kami because nobody in the Roman legions ever been to Japan. Uh, so we had to come up with a good name for them. And I'd been watching Big Trouble in Little China in the background while I was working on this idea, and I'm like, I've got to have a name. I've got to have a name. And 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 just then, one of the old Chinese men in the show, uh, who's talking about the supernatural events of the show, says, "All tension in the universe, or, or all movement in the universe, is caused by tension between positive and negative furies." And I went, "Oh, furies! That's perfect. It's even Greco-Roman." I got a speck of Roman legion there, gave him a couple thousand years to form a society, uh, added in furies instead of technology for for how they got things done, and 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 started writing the story. 
Uh, so now there's a Dresden Files uh, pen and paper role playing game. Um, how did that come about? Uh, uh, my 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 high school gaming or not high school but college gaming buddy Fred called me and said, "Hey, uh, I'm kind of doing this uh, uh, this role playing game company that I want to start up, and we'd like to use the Dresden Files for a role playing game." I said, "Fred, are you kidding? That's a terrible idea." <laughs> Uh, uh, and that, that was, that was, I think that was, that was before Deadbeat even came out, really. And, uh, I'm like, Fred, that's an awful idea. Are you sure? And he's like, well, yeah, I, I really want to. It's like, well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I trust you to treat my stuff well and everything. I just think you've got a terrible idea and I don't want to see you, you know, ruin yourself on it. And he's like, no, I think I can make, I can make something good happen. I'm like, okay. Well, if you think so. And, and we made a deal. And then, uh, Fred took that and, and did what Fred does with things, which is, is, is Fred is like Mr. Laser Focus. I mean, he is, he is scary focused on things when he's, when he's in, when he's in drive mode. And, uh, so he got the, he got the game and, and, and took off and, and started, started working with it. And, and then all of a sudden there were all these people that, that were on his staff that were sending me emails and saying, Hey, can you answer this question? Why does this happen in the Dresden Files? And, and, and you know, Penning down, you know, pinning down all these things that uh, uh, that they would need to create the game world, you know, it was very very detailed stuff, and uh, uh, I probably traded 200 250 pages of, of correspondence back and forth over the the nature of the Dresden Files world and so on, uh, and, and then they started putting the game together, and, and he, I think Fred says that uh, he had not understood how huge a project it was going to be when he got started. And uh, he wound up having to publish two or three other games just to get his grow his company big enough to be able to do the Dresden Files game. And uh, so it was it was it was the semi mythical Dresden Files role playing game for many years because it still wasn't ready, even though he expected it to be out in, in you know 2000 in 2007 2008 um, 2009 and the, the the date kept getting bumped back. But uh, um, now that it's out, though, I mean it's it's one of the the most detailed and and um, you know, really one of the prettiest uh, uh, gaming books I've, I've seen so far. Uh, I'm very proud of it on Fred's behalf because the, the game's won all kinds of awards now and uh, is selling really well. And uh, I, I get to hear from folks all the time about how, how much fun it is. I also th- I thought it was kind of funny how these guys doing the game had read the book so many times that they had kind of figured out a lot of stuff that was going to happen in the later books. <laughs> I know, I know, and they kept throwing things into into the into the role playing game book, uh, and then I'm like, oh, guys, you can't put that in the book. They're like, why not? Because I haven't done it yet. You're going to ruin the surprise. You got to take this out. Oh, okay. Well, can we mention this? No, you can't mention that. But it was it made me feel really good though that they that they had been able to, uh, you know, to to research the story world and then to to start putting things together well enough to go well. Okay, if A then B, then this must be true as well. And 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 it made me really feel good that I'd done a, a good enough job building the story world that I was like, well, yeah, that is the next logical step, but don't talk about it yet. Hmm. I also I thought it was interesting they mentioned that they had both been involved with the Amber, uh, the the role playing game based on the Amber series by Roger Zelazny. I was just wondering, are you familiar with that game and and that series, and did that have any influence on you? Oh yeah, yeah. I was uh, I played um, the Amber Diceless game in mush form. Uh, uh, on, on Amber Mush for, for, for years and years, um, while I was in college. Um, and it, it, that was, in fact, that was where I met Fred, was, 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 was mushing, uh, on Amber with him. And, um, uh, as far as, uh, I think, I think writing on Amber was one of those things, it was one of those things, cause, cause I'd be writing for characters and, and you'd play various characters online and you'd have to, you know, get a good idea and write their voice and then you'd have to kind of build the environment they lived in and so on. 
And uh, uh, I think it was one of those really good uh, um, experience building projects uh, because, you know, I had to learn, you had to write a lot of dialogue like all the time, uh, which is, it was a good place to learn how to write dialogue. And you had to be able to set mood. You had to be able to describe things very succinctly uh, because if you described them too much, nobody would read it. Uh, so you wanted to describe things that were, you know, in, in the in the least amount of, of space you possibly could, kind of in this totally text-based uh, virtual world. And uh, you know, I got to the point where I, I would run like 11 different characters at a time, uh, you know, in different windows, and and uh, uh, still having me doing all these characters and keeping up with all these all these different scenes. And and uh, you know, looking back, it's like I, I can't really think of a of a better way to start training for writing, you know, the the kind of genre fiction that I that I wanted to write. Uh, although I never would have, I never would have thought that at the time. Uh, so I understand that you uh, you belong to a regular role playing gaming group. Uh, what uh, what games have you guys been playing lately? Well, this whole this whole Gen Con between my book coming up and and, and going on tour for that, uh, and and then Gen Con right afterwards, we haven't met since uh, I think early July. But right now we're playing. Let's see, the last, we we just got done playing a Gamma World campaign. And uh, now we're doing. Um, uh, I'm jamming a, a, a kind of a steampunk setting game using the Warhammer rules, the Warhammer roleplay rules. Warhammer Fantasy roleplay is a one truth game, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, let's see, we've done a bunch of D&D Fourth Edition lately. Uh, we actually got to, to, to play test D&D Fourth Edition before it came out, which was kind of neat. Although you have to sign all these these non-disclosure agreements, you know, it's like, no, I will not talk about D&D Fourth Edition to anybody. But we had a, I mean, I mean, you know, we, we, depending on, over the years, we played a, a bunch of different games. Uh, we played Cthulhu campaigns and, and earlier edition D&D campaigns and so on. Uh, you know, we've played, uh, uh, Paranoia and Chill and, and all these other gaming systems, you know, the Marvel superheroes role playing game from, from long, long ago. So I, I heard you tell a story once about how you discovered that your dad had been this total badass. Could you talk about that? Yeah. My dad was just my dad. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, that's what everybody, I think, thinks about their father. It's like, well, well, he's dad, and, and that's what he is. He's he's kind of the guy that you that you go to when you when you've got a problem, uh, and the guy that you you know is you're going to deal with if you get in trouble. You know, so the, as far as I was concerned, you know, my my father was just kind of this this steady regular guy that you could always depend on, and we'd go to baseball games sometimes. When I get in trouble, I'd I'd you'd get in trouble with him, and. uh uh, uh, and that's kind of who he was. And it never really occurred to me to think that he might have been something else, you know, other than just being my dad. Uh, when you're a young kid, you don't really worry about that, that sort of thing. Anyway, one day I'm up in the attic and I'm rooting around and I come across this old trunk. Can I open it? And I look at the stuff that's in there and, and uh, I take it downstairs and I say, hey, dad, what's all this stuff? And uh, he's like, well, what do you mean? And I, say, I, I pull off this old jacket. Well, what's this? What's this? This, were you in the army? Is this an army jacket? He's like, oh yeah, it's my old jacket. What's this winged dagger patch on the side? Oh, that just means that I would jump out of airplanes. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, well, really? He's like, yeah. And he was, and it turns out, you know, that he's like, here, let me show you. And he starts showing me pictures of of, of himself in the army. And and uh, look, here's all, all the weapons I was qualified on. And, and I was a qualified expert on all these weapons. And and I'm like, well, you like a sharpshooter? He's like, no, son. Sharpshooter's the rank below expert. <laughs> Hmm. I'm like, oh, and he can't. He opened them up, and and uh, he's like, yeah, these are all the American weapons, and these are the these are the these are the German weapons, and these are the Russian weapons, and the the, the, the British weapons that I that I knew. And, and he was uh, stationed in in Germany during the very beginning of the Cold War. He was uh, a Ranger Recon, 
And and most of this is stuff that I mean the stuff that he that he told me at the time I remember and I remember you know reading all the stuff and he's like oh yeah and, and I'm like what's this one here? what's this one here and he's like oh that's my that's my uh, pen for being the unit's unarmed combat instructor and I'm like wow really I'm like yeah yeah and and that one's for being the knife fighting instructor I'm like wow and my all, all along my dad was Rambo and I never knew it. Mm-hmm. And he sort of he sort of stops and looks over all the stuff, and he looks at me and he says, "So, what do you think about that?" And I look back at him and, and said, "I think I'll be home by 10. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, "Okay, well, in that case, that's good." But uh, yeah, but I've been able to, uh, you know, I've continued to kind of research things. He died when I was when I uh, when I was twenty, and uh, uh, you know, as I kind of look back over over his life and been researching things, I've been putting all these different things together. It's like, well. He, you know, he was, he trained under a guy, I remember him talking about his drill sergeant and, uh, uh, he actually, he trained under, under a British drill sergeant and, and, and then I, I went and found out, well, he was stationed in Germany in 19, 1949 to 1951, you know, the dawn of the Cold War. And, uh, then I found out he spoke German without an accent. And I found that out when I got in trouble with a, a friend of mine whose mom was from Germany because his dad had been in the army. And, uh, uh, my dad wasn't home, so she she took it upon herself to chew me out on, on his behalf. And uh, so when my dad showed up at the house, she was she was she had worked herself up into a fury, and it switched from English to German. I had no idea what she was saying, but I was appropriately terrified. And uh, uh, dad came in and sort of listened, listened, nodded, and then he just said something in German, and I don't I have no idea what he said, but she burst out laughing and looked at him, and they had a, like a two or three minute conversation in German. And then dad took me home, you know, and. Uh, I'm like, you speak German? He's like, yeah. And she, and, uh, and, you know, she says he doesn't even have an accent. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, so you know, I, I, find, I find out all these little things that add up over time. And I find out, well, the only soldiers at that time in the Army that were training were, were Ranger units who were being trained for intelligence gathering uh, because this was, this was after uh, uh, the, the – uh, it was the ONI in World War II. It was after Truman took, uh, had closed down the ONI and before the CIA opened up. Uh, there was like this seven or eight year, uh, year gap in, in intelligence gathering, and so it fell to the Army to do it. And the Army had assigned Ranger units to do it. And uh, uh, and you know, my dad was this highly trained Ranger, and yet he during the entire Korean War he stationed in. Uh, you know, he's stationed in, in Germany, working in, in apparently working in a warehouse. It's like, no, guys like that don't get it's assigned to warehouse inventory duty in Germany. <laughs> you know, and and uh, I find out all these things where I think that he was actually one of these guys, and, and their their identities were classified until like 2006. And you know, so you find this stuff out that you never really knew was true because it was just my dad, and he worked at this steel company, and and you know, he was actually worked at their warehouse doing their inventory. Uh, and you find out all these things later. Uh, like, oh my gosh, these these people have these whole lives that you don't know about. Did, did his character or any of that material like that? Were you have you been able to use any of that uh, for your fiction? I I, I I try not put people that I really that I actually know. Um, I, I try not to have those people get stuck in there. Um, their influence the, the influence of, of somebody like my dad is tremendous. Um, because my dad is the guy who taught me that the really tough guys have got no need to talk about how tough they are. They, they've really, they've got no need to, to prove how tough they are to anybody. They're just ready to be that way when they have to be that way. Uh, you know, I actually saw my dad as a, as a 59 year old man. He was about five, seven, um, square off against a six foot three 
weightlifting biker who who was refusing to leave the yogurt store because he was sweet on one of the girls who worked there. Uh, my my parents owned several TCBY yogurt chains in the late 80s, and I worked at them inevitably. And uh, uh, this guy had stayed too late, and, and I did not know uh, what to do. And and this kind of tells you about what kind of person my father was, that I didn't call the police when the guy wouldn't leave the store after it was time for us to close. I called my dad, and I'm like, what do I do? Do I call the police? He's like, no, I'll come up and take care of it. Don't worry. <laughs> dad comes up, and he comes rolling in, and he's like this stocky 5'7 guy with these big old Popeye forearms. And uh, he, he he walks right in and, and, and walks right past the, the biker and, and comes up to me and says, is that him? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Takes off his coat, hangs it up on the hook, walks out to the biker and just stops and looks at him. And he's got his back's to me, so I never see the look on his face. But the biker turns and kind of squares off against him and his chest puffs up a bit. And he just stands like that for a minute. And the biker gets pale and takes a step back. And my dad says, sir time for you to leave the store now and the biker says yes sir <laughs> and turns around and goes and i'm like oh my gosh my dad's a jedi did you see that <laughs> uh, what happened i didn't even know and dad just kind of turned around and walked back over to me and, and says okay let me know if there's any other trouble and, and gets his coat on and goes and like wow I, how did he do that that was incredible but apparently that's i mean I've, I've talked to some folks who you know who are operators now and apparently they're like yeah really there's there's ways to let people know that you can do things to them if they <laughs> if they really want to start up. And he's like, sounds to me like your dad was just familiar with that. I'm like, okay. Uh, so what's the current status of the film and TV rights to the Dresden Files? Are, are there any other plans for a, for another TV show or movie? Um, I have the rights right now. Um, there are folks who uh, are calling. I mean, it's fairly it's fairly regular that folks who are interested call and ask about it and and want to talk to you about about what they want to do. Um, but the, the fact is, is that the very seldom does anything actually get made, get done. Um, uh, kind of the rule of thumb is, uh, it isn't a done deal until their check has cleared the bank. You know, after that, then you can say, okay, now you've got to deal with somebody in Hollywood, but, but, uh, uh, we'll see if anything else comes out. I'm open to the idea. I'm willing to forgive Hollywood, uh, <laughs> for, uh, for only doing one season. Uh, but, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah, great. And just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Uh, right now I'm working on a fantasy book that is sort of uh, um, – it's uh, uh, very heavily influenced by the Black Company. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a steampunk uh, series that I've got in mind that, that I might want to start working on. Um, that, that stuff that I'm doing um, for the rest of this year, I'm, I'm going to do another another book this year. I, either the, the steampunk or the fantasy, I'm, I'm kind of juggling which one is – Trying to weigh which one is better, and then uh, uh, well, and then of course the next Dresden book. Uh, I'll start that uh, um, at the first of the year, and uh, the, that was going to be called Cold Days, and we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see what comes out of that. That should be a lot of fun. All right, great. Well, Jim Butcher, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thank you very much for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jim Butcher for joining us on the show. Okay, and so for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about some uh, news, recent news stories that are kind of of geek interest. And so, actually, so the, the first thing I wanted to talk about this this was a few months ago, but there was this uh, uh, conflict between uh, the fantasy author Neil Gaiman and this guy Matt Dean, who is the uh, majority leader of the House of Representatives for the state of Minnesota. And so, let's see. So basically, what happened was that. Neil Gaiman was invited 
to speak. Okay, well, you know, Neil Gaiman is a very busy guy. And uh, so he uh, has a high speaking fee so that he can, uh, you know, get writing done. And this local library uh, invited him to come in and uh, he explained that he has this high speaking fee. And they said that that's cool because they had been given money by the state that was in a special fund earmarked for bringing high profile authors to uh, sort of suburban districts where big authors don't normally come. And uh, the deadline for spending this money was fast approaching. And uh, if they didn't spend it, they were going to lose it. So, so once they explained that to him, uh, Neil Gaiman accepted and he donated the money to charity. Um, and I think, uh, as he often does with these, these speaking fees. Uh, and so this guy, Matt Dean heard about this. Uh, it's not clear how much he really bothered to investigate the, the circumstances, um, before opening his big mouth in a newspaper interview. And he said that Neil Gaiman, he called him a thief of quote, pencil-necked little weasel hmm. who I hate and said that he had, quote, stolen the money from the state of Minnesota. Ugh. So, so, so Neil Gaiman uh, heard about this and he just sort of, you know, mentioned it sort of funnily on his uh, Twitter thing. And of course, Neil Gaiman has, what, well over a million Twitter followers. And so this crashed the, uh, you know, Matt Dean's uh, government website. And, and so, so, so Neil Gaiman sort of responded to this. He said, quote, it's strange watching a grown-up high school bully in power, but the bully vocabulary remains the same. Hmm. And, and, and after this, this sort of became a big, big thing on the Internet, um, Matt Dean apologized. He said, quote, my mom is staying with us right now because my wife's out of town. She was very angry this morning and always taught me not to be a name caller, and I shouldn't have done it, and I apologize. Worst apology ever. Yeah, so... Wait, I'm looking... How old is this guy? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what's up with his mom going to stay with him because his wife's out of town? What, he can't be trusted to stay with <laughs> by himself? Like, if his wife's out of town? Like, will he Will he just, like, will he not feed himself? He'll just waste away to nothing because he doesn't know how to take care of himself? Yeah, so he's... Uh, it looks like he's about 45, so... And he's, you know, needs to have his mom tell him to... Uh, <laughs> when, when he should apologize for, you know, being a jerk. Um... But this it was sort of making me think of, you know, um, after the Columbine um, school shootings, uh, there was this initial rush to blame all sorts of entertainment, um, in particular Marilyn Manson. Although mm. uh, I, guess, I think it turned out in the end that that the the shooters had not actually were, were not actually fans of Marilyn Manson. Not that I think it makes much difference either way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but what really struck me about that was that um, there was a, a newspaper article I read at the time where it talked about the congressman. Uh, sort of picking on Marilyn Manson as just sort of like high school bullies, you know, of the past who are now in Congress picking on a sort of uh, outcast kid of the past who's now a, a musician. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and I really thought that that was an apt uh, observation. And I really wonder, you know, how many people in Congress are former bullies. Hmm. Uh, there, there certainly don't, don't seem to be a whole lot of people in Congress who are former nerds, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just this this really sad article I read, I think it was a, a two or three years ago, and it was about how lonely congressmen feel who have scientific backgrounds, hmm. because there are so few people in Congress, you know, who have scientific backgrounds, and, uh, and that they're constantly just having to rush around trying to correct just basic factual misunderstandings of, of their colleagues. 
So so it's just it's just kind of I think a this this Matt Dean acting like a bully to Neil Gaiman I think is just sort of uh, symptomatic of of this larger issue of a lack of geeks in positions of power, uh, political power I guess I should say, you know, politicians sort of picking on artists does have very serious consequences sometimes um, for the arts and and for society generally I mean. Uh, there's this book that came out recently called, uh, I think, The Tencent Plague, about the um, sort of witch hunts against comic books, uh, kind of in, the, I think it was in the 50s, 50s, or 50s and 60s. And this, this um, resulted in the institution of something called the Comic, comic Code, uh, which, which put all sorts of very strict limitations on what characters in comic books could do, uh, and, and essentially just sort of crippled artistic seriousness in comic books for, for decades afterward. Um, uh, actually, uh, Stephen King, I think, in, in his book, Dance Macabre, talks about talks about this, about how, you know, he grew up reading these wonderful EC horror comics in which all sorts of grisly things uh, happened. And I think they were the most popular comics uh, of, the, of, the of the day. And then they all just sort of went away. They were all sort of killed by this um, political uh, campaign. But so, I mean, when, you know, when um, this whole Matt Dean, Neil Gaiman thing went down, somebody pointed out that Matt Dean, the number of people who had voted in the election, you know, who had voted for Matt Dean to put him into office, it was something, I don't know, it was like 30,000 voters, something like that. Mm -hmm. And just pointing out, you know, that Neil Gaiman has well over a million Twitter followers. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many of them live in Minnesota, you know, but it's not at all inconceivable that, you know, if, if every Neil Gaiman Twitter follower who lives in Minnesota <laughs> voted against Matt Dean, that could swing the election. And so, uh, so just, so, so in response to, to Matt Dean's comment about, you know, just like hating Neil Gaiman, Neil, Neil Gaiman said, like, I really wouldn't mind if Minnesotans would consider voting for someone who doesn't keep a hate, you know, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> yeah. keep a hate list of, of, of people. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, all well and good for individual authors, especially, you know, if they have a following like Neil Gaiman does to, you know, they can sort of have some arsenal to, to defend themselves, defend themselves against sort of jerks like this. But I just wonder if, you know, geeks could kind of get together somehow, you know, and uh, that any time a politician is, you know, being a jerk like this to a to an author or, you know, agitating to cut funding for libraries and mm -hmm. public radio, stuff like that, people, you know, stuff that, that geeks care about generally, that there could just be some network where, you know, you could get all the big bloggers uh, to really sort of organize people to, to get out and, and sort of get more level-headed, rational, kind people uh, into public office. Yeah, that actually makes me think of uh, there's a story by Jeremiah Tolbert called uh, The Kansas Jayhawk versus the Midwest Midwestern Monster Squad. You can actually read it online. Uh, we, maybe we can put a link in the show notes. But um, uh, in that story, there's, uh, you know, uh, he, he postulates a, an otaku party, um, which takes over, uh, you know, which becomes a, a valid party in government. And, you know, it's like a, a geek nerd party. Yeah, I mean, I think and I think that that's more, you know, I, th I think that's more plausible than you might think. I mean. Uh, you know, we just interviewed Richard Dawkins. That'll be uh, our next uh, interview that goes up after, after this episode. But uh, you know, he's he's always making the point that uh, that, that atheists are all are kind of like crapped on by by politicians all the time. Um, but there's actually a fairly large number of atheists in the country, but they're not politically organized, and so you know, politicians feel free to just stomp on them. And and that if atheists, you know, would would organize politically and and sort of vote in blocks and stuff, that the politicians wouldn't dare to. Uh, 
uh, to treat them that way. And I think the same is, is true of geeks. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of geeks out there. And uh, have we talked about Geektopia on the show before? I, I don't think we have. Yeah, so Geektopia uh, is just my sort of idea for uh, uh, like this uh, ideal community for geeks. Uh, I sort of it sort of grew out of um, just a, just of my desire to like you know just get like a to get like a three a three story brownstone in New York and like have like me live on one floor, you know, like have one of my other friends live on another floor, or you know maybe maybe have roommates in each one, but you know just like fill the building with my friends and like you know just thinking of it as Geektopia. Um, and then the the idea sort of grew to be like, oh well, what if we what if we all moved somewhere um, like Kansas or something where land was cheap, and we got like you know we we brought even more people together and just built like a little community, and and so there's that idea, and then and then I also had the sort of there was a sort of a side idea of Geektopia, which would be like a you know uh, like sort of a geek hangout. Because uh, like in you know if you if you ever if you're ever in New York uh, I mean there's lots of geeky things to do in New York but basically after ten o'clock there, uh, at night there's nothing to do it's like I mean you can go hang out in a bar with all the with all the you know uh, sort of frat boys and whatnot um, and, and and sports fans but uh, the, but there's nothing actually for geeks and so the other version of Geekopia was um, sort of a store slash geek hangout place um but uh, but the original idea was was uh, was a was a community um and uh you know like if you have a, a a large enough community you can say oh well we'll we'll hire you know we'll we'll pay to have neil gaiman come speak at geektopia you know or whatever um and uh, and geektopia become beca- could become like an opinion maker um it's kind of like i, I kind of like envision it it's, it's like io9 but like in the real world like a, a city of io9 you know basically <laughs> Uh, hey, and speaking of hanging out with geeks in New York, I, I just created a <laughs> Facebook page called Geeks Guide to the Galaxy NYC, uh, which I hope is a site that people can. I'll, I'll be posting, you know, uh, about stuff going on in New York. And so, if you're if you live in New York or if you visit, you know, uh, and you want to meet other people in in the area, you know, uh, follow, you know, like like that page on Facebook and come out to some of the events and and you know and meet me and, and meet other people. Um, but, but my, my vision of a, of a geek, of a sort of utopian society for geeks has always been, uh, you know, um, in high school, I was assigned to read this book, Shogun, um, by James Clavell. And there's a part right, you know, there's, there's a, a, an English sailor who, um, you know, get, who, who ends up uh, in feudal Japan and right at the beginning, some, there's a samurai guy and, and some servant, uh, offends him somehow, you know, he doesn't bow obsequiously enough or something. And the samurai just whips out his sword and, and chops the guy's head off. And I've always just thought, you know, like if you're a geek, you, you go around constantly and, and you just constantly meet people and they're like, you know, oh, I don't read science fiction or that's escapist, mm-hmm. whatever. And, <laughs> and, and so in my ideal society, geeks would all just carry swords. And, mm-hmm. and whenever anybody said like that, said something like that, you know, we could just chop their heads off. And, <laughs> and it was just, and that, you know, it just came, and, and like in, like in Shogun, it was just considered like normal. Like nobody would even bat an eye because it's like, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's just, you know, how society should work. So, I mean, call me, call me a dreamer, call me a utopianist, <laughs> but... That would be my ideal society that right there. I, I'm right with you there, except that instead of uh, swords, I, I'd rather we had lightsabers. <laughs> I mean, if that's possible. I mean, if we're just dreaming, you know, why not? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, actually, now that you, now that you finally mentioned decapitation, um, I, I thought it was kind of funny. Like, uh, we have uh, we have we have like a little uh, list of uh, show notes of what we're going to be talking about, and 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 so the first the first line uh, Dave has here is Neil Gaiman versus Matt Dean dash Marilyn Manson dash Twitter dash decapitation, <laughs> and I was like. Um, okay, how are we going to get from Matt Dean and Neil Gaiman to decapitation via Marilyn Manson and Twitter? Uh, I mean, it was kind of a puzzling line, but uh, it's, hey, you made it all work in the end, so good job. 
It's like, you know, hey, uh, he, here, take these four elements and write a short story out of it. And then, like, you know, you end up with something crazy and awesome. It's like, oh, wow, that was great. Good, 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 good job. Um, yeah, I actually, actually, all our, all our uh, conversations on this show operate along the same principle as Mad Libs. I just uh, <laughs> take random words and try to, you know, string them together in some coherent way. Yeah, actually, if anybody wants to write a short story uh, featuring Neil Gaiman and Matt Dean uh, and decapitation Marilyn Manson and Twitter somehow, I mean, go for it. I'd love to see what happens. All right, but I guess that, that should bring us to our next topic, uh, which is uh, – oh, this was, this was painful. But, <laughs> but so uh, – Yeah, speaking of people who deserve to be decapitated. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but so, yeah, so there was this, this uh, blog post on Gizmodo by this intern – uh, and she had gone on a blind date through OkCupid, uh, a dating website. And uh, the, the guy that she went out with turned out to be a, a former uh, world champion of Magic the Gathering. And, and, and so this, this writer was just so, I mean, she you know, was, was just so uh, offended that, that somebody this dorky would dare <laughs> go out on a blind date without warning people in advance what a dorky was or something like that. And, uh, and so she wrote this really, really nasty blog post in which she mentioned him by name and linked to his um, Wikipedia page and all this stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, and so, so this became, this blew up into a huge internet thing. And my impression was, you know, 95%, if not more of the comments were uh, critical of her for, for having posted this, this nasty thing. I thought really it broke out into sort of three separate issues. There was sort of the issue of, are you justified in not going on another date with someone for a very shallow, superficial reasons? Uh, there's the issue of, is magic any more deserving of scorn than any other hobby or, you know, whatever? And, uh, do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you go out on a blind date with someone that they won't? mock you on a <laughs> popular blog. Uh, I guess I guess just to take those point by point, I mean, yeah, you can, I think you're justified in not wanting to go out on another date with somebody for any reason that you have, even the stupid, stupid sort of superficial ones. But if you talk about it publicly, you can sort of expect people to point out that you're stupid and that you're being stupid and superficial. Mm -hmm. um, and then point two is, you know, is Magic the Gathering any more inherently dorky than playing poker or playing kickball or uh, badminton or something. Hmm. And so a lot of people were sort of chiming in to sort of um, defend Magic the Gathering as a sort of, you know, intellectually rigorous, you know, mm -hmm. imaginative, you know, pastime. And uh, it, it is kind of weird to think about, like, sort of what makes one card game like Magic dorky and what makes another card game like poker cool. Uh, that's why I have James Bond in my notes here. I, I was thinking, like, you know, you can't, you know, because, because, you know, I really liked that recent uh, James Bond movie, Casino Royale, with Daniel Craig, and I was thinking, you know, like, how whacked out would it be if, you know, you, you're watching the trailer for that, and Judy Dench is like, Bond, you're the best Magic: The Gathering player in the service. You know, <laughs> we need you for this mission. Yeah, I think that would actually be pretty cool. But I mean, it would totally, you know, you're like, wait, James, James, you know, you have no trouble accepting that James Bond plays poker, but you're like, wait, yeah. he plays Magic: The Gathering. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, what is, I don't know, what is it uh, about Magic the Gathering that gives it that, that sort of dork, you know, uh, feel? Is it just that it has fantasy images on the cards? Or, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just that same general taint that all all sort of genre fiction has. Uh, I mean, to that to uh, I mean, this girl probably would have reacted the same if, if she went on a date with me or you. Like when she found out that you know you wrote and published uh, science fiction stories, or that I um, you know was a science fiction editor. Um, I mean, if anything, you think she would have been impressed that he was so good at? I mean, he make a living at playing a game. You know, well, that doesn't that doesn't earn any respect. I mean, she's she. I mean, this was on Gizmodo for for God's sake. You know, I mean, it's like how how can Gizmodo post um, post something that's critical of someone who's awesome at playing games? Isn't that a little uh, <laughs> hypocritical? I mean, obviously, Gizmodo is about gadgets more than just games. Uh, but um, I mean, it's not quite as weird as if Kutaku had played it had run the story. But you know, it, it's not clear to me that she knew exactly how much how lucrative. His, his hobby was. I mean, apparently he's made over $300,000 playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, and he's also plays poker professionally and is a hedge fund manager. So, I mean, even by the most superficial materialistic criteria, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he, he would be considered a success. Right. Um, I have to I have to say, I, I have to kind of give the guy um, some props for uh, for going out on, on OkCupid and not flying his geek flag. Like, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe he maybe he doesn't maybe other than magic, he's not particularly geeky or something. And and, and, and he thought like, oh, well, I, I don't want to I don't want to date a geek. I, I just want to date a, like a, a non geek or something. I, I don't know. Uh, but I mean, like personally, like whenever I I mean, you know, before I met Chrissy and, and you know, I mean, and I was I was trying to find dates uh, through dating service. And or, or like online and stuff. I mean, I I used OkCupid at, at one point, and and I mean, you know, I always shit. I I, I was I was proudly listing all uh, as many geek accomplishments as I could. I mean, like I didn't I didn't want to uh, like uh, post enough so that people could figure out who I was or anything. But I mean, you know, it's like I, I wanted to I wanted to seem as geeky as possible because I mean, all, all I was interested in meeting was another geek. So, um, you know, I mean, good for him for actually going out there and trying to hide that. But I mean, um, I think it, it didn't work out in the end for him. I mean, although actually, I think uh, he he probably he probably made out okay in the end. I mean, he, he had to suffer some embarrassment there uh, when this happened. But I, I imagine there were he probably got plenty of inquiries from from women who thought he was awesome, and uh, you know, after after this, so yeah. Well, I mean, when the story broke, I mean, he uh, you know, it got picked up by like. Um, Felicia Day on Twitter and Veronica Belmont and and all sorts of you know sort of geek women sort of uh, sticking up for this guy and uh, you know I, and I guess he was in fact deluged with uh, you know uh, date you know date offers so so yeah I mean actually somebody uh, what was that on our Facebook thing or something said uh, you know well maybe uh, maybe he you know he and this Gawker uh, and this Gizmodo writer were in cahoots mm. and they you know stage the whole thing as a publicity stunt or something, uh, which I, I, I find fairly unlikely. Um, mm-hmm. cause I mean, <laughs> I sure wouldn't want to, I mean, that's, that's playing with fire right there. You know, you don't know how it's going to, how it's going to go, uh, if you were yeah. to set something like that up, but, uh, but yeah, it does, it does seem to have worked out fairly well. I was going to say, actually, I thought, you know, he handled, handled it really with a lot of class too. I mean, but yeah, I mean, because because yeah, because because John got me to sign up for this this stupid OKCupid <laughs> site too. So I mean, yeah, um, this is like there. This is one of those like there, but for the grace of God, go I sorts of things mm-hmm. uh, when, when you know when you see this this story. But I mean, I mean, do you think that you have like an expectation, like a reasonable expectation, when you go out with a go on a date with someone that they're not going to post about it on their blog? I mean, does that? Yeah, I mean, crazy. I think that's just that's that just seems like general um, sort of acceptable human behavior to assume that you know that 
you know, I mean, at the at the at the worst, you would think that like, oh, well, if 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 you go out on a date and you and you um, and you act like a complete uh, asshole or something like, you know, maybe they would blog about it, but not but not out who you are. I mean, that's that's like taking it like a step uh, so far. Although, I mean, in her case, I guess since she, since the thing that she was appalled by was the fact that he was a magic champion. I mean, people would have been able to figure it out if, uh, you know, if, if she didn't actually spell out who it was. But. But I mean, you know, like we just mentioned, you know, there, it was brought up the possibility, you know, was this staged, you know, for, for the benefit of, of the, uh, part, you know, of the individuals. But there, there was also a lot of speculation, you know, did the website post this, you know, mm-hmm. knowing how um, uh, inflammatory it, it was going to be just to drive traffic uh, to the website, um, which is called nerd baiting, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. or has become known as nerd baiting because I guess nerds are, you know, you know, are, are sort of more active on the internet. And so stuff that pisses off nerds gets linked around a lot and, and drives a lot of traffic. So I guess there's speculation that websites are, are uh, intentionally uh, posting stuff to upset nerds uh, to drive traffic. So I, I wonder, you know, to what extent is that happening? And as a nerd, what, rea- you know, what, what sort of response should, should we take? I mean, well, cause, cause like when the story broke, you know, I linked to it on Twitter Um Mm-hmm. And said, you know, well, check check this horrible person out, and 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 John was like, no, don't link to it. That's that's what that's what they want, and and so actually, I I thought about that a lot, and I'm just you know I'm just not sure uh, what what response to, to take because because mm-hmm. on the one hand, yeah, if 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 traffic is what they want and you're sort of being manipulated, then that's bad. But on the other hand, like I'm glad that other people linked to this story. So that as someone who has one of these stupid OKCupid okay profiles, mm. uh, you know, I'm aware that something like this might happen because I, I, you know, it, it was, you know, what's the worst that can happen going out on a blind date with someone? Oh, it, you get ripped on Gizmodo the next morning, uh, you know. Right. I, I'm, you know, I'm sad that I have to know that that's a possibility, but I'm glad that I'm forewarned, you know. Yeah. It's, it seems It seems futile to me for... To, to to just sort of try to ignore the thing, you know, ignore mm-hmm. offensive things and, and hope they'll go away. I mean, it seems like for for better or worse, you have to engage with them. Mm-hmm. Maybe to deca- maybe decapitate some people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, did you ever actually? I was just, I was just curious. Did you ever play Magic: The Gathering? I mean, do you... I never actually did. Uh, um, you know, I uh, I did play. Um, there was a Star Trek collectible card game. Um, Sort of around the time when Magic was very popular, and and I got really into that. And uh, I also played this. There was also a Star Wars one around the same time, um, and and you know I played that. Um, and uh, you know the thing is, those things are really expensive um, if you want to build like good decks. Um, and you know, I mean, at the time I was like working in retail. Um, I think it, it was either before I was in college or I was in college at the time, because uh, you know I. I uh, I actually dropped out of high school when I was 16 and got my GED, and then I didn't go. I didn't start college until I was like 21. Um, so you know, there's a period of time there where I was just working and, and uh, um, not yet in college. But anyway, uh, some some period around that time um, is when I was playing these, and uh, um, you know, I, uh, I I spent as much as I could on on those two <laughs> decks uh, or on those two games, and I, I didn't really have any um, additional funds to to investigate Magic as well. Um, and sadly, you know, all the, all that money and time I devoted to those games, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't even know what happened to those decks, you know, I probably <laughs> threw them away or something. It's kind of ridiculous, but. Or your mom threw um, them away. 
No, no, I, I never, I never had that situation where like my mom would have thrown anything away because I mean, um, you know, uh, like I, I would have moved out of my own, with my own stuff. I never like moved away and like had stuff left in my mom's house, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I, I just moved out directly uh, with my stuff, so, um, so she couldn't have, but. Because my my, oh, yeah, mom, I mean, my mom threw out all my old Dragon magazines. That was oh I'm, no, I'm still uh, I'm still steamed about that one. Huh. Um, but so no, did you did you play Magic though? I I sort of dabbled with it when it first came out, but um, you know, and I really liked. I mean, I thought it was cool. I really liked the artwork and um, <laughs> and stuff. But there were like like two essentially a collectible card game. Just a just basically doesn't appeal to me because. I, 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 it, the idea that you had like whoever that you could sort of it was sort of this arms race where you would have to mm-hmm. like keep spending money to to be in the game and you know mm-hmm. that the, you know if someone spent ten times as much money that, as you were willing to it would give them a big advantage mm-hmm. uh, that didn't appeal to me at all and uh, and just the basic idea that I, if I lost a match I would lose one of my cards mm-hmm. uh, I'm just very possessive about my stuff and I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. even i couldn't even bear i never even played you know whenever i actually played anyone it's like i'm keeping all my cards just to let <laughs> you know, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i mean i'm willing to play this game but i'm not giving you any of my cards uh right right so i mean i was never really cut out i don't i'm afraid for for magic uh anyway but uh yeah i, I guess it's still around too they just released some new um i mean they just released some new expansion or something brandon sanderson was talking about it on twitter and uh i mean he was sort of uh saying hey does anybody want to come play this with me like i guess he still you know he still has a, a deck and everything and so he he was like um you know like, hey i don't want to come to this uh this pre-release of of the new uh expansion and, and play against me you know like you know anybody in in where he lives which is i think is in uh salt lake city or certainly he lives in utah somewhere but uh, I, I, speaking of collectible card games, though, uh, my 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 most lasting memory of them, um, aside from those Star Trek and Star Wars games that I actually played, was uh, when I was in college. I, I worked at a Books a Million um, bookstore for a while, and uh, this was around the time when the Pokemon collectible card game was big. And oh my god, they made uh, like okay, so first of all, there was tons of like just like little children who would come in and and buy Pokemon cards, and and they were kind of annoying because they were like. <laughs> You know, they were wild children who were collecting games and, um, you know, they get a little crazy about that kind of thing. Uh, but then uh, because they were so popular, um, the manager decided to institute like a uh, Pokemon tournament every Saturday. And oh, my God, it was just like every child in the in the within like 10 miles would converge on the store and it would just be such a nightmare. And so kind of left a bad taste in my mouth after that. Uh, never uh, never really dabbled in any collectible card games since then. But, I mean, I think that's also sort of uh, partially just because I, I, you know, I've been there, done that, I, I, you know. Well, I mean, one thing I observed on, on the message board uh, discussing this, this Gizmodo article was that, you know, uh, the writer had referred to Magic as like a game that was popular back in the 90s or something. Mm-hmm. And, and all sorts of Magic fans chimed in to take exception to that because they're like, it's, it's only grown in popularity since then. It's gotten more and more, it gets more and more popular every year. So I just want to point that out that mm-hmm. according, according to many, many people, magic is more popular than it's ever been. Um, and obviously the fact that this guy was, has, has made 300 grand playing it, you know, mm-hmm. shows that there must be a lot of, uh, a lot of people playing it, a lot of interest in it. But, um, you know, speaking of sort of geek discrimination, uh, which we started off talking about, that's that's sort of the other thing that happened with Magic. This was after, you know, this was after I, I went off to college and stuff, but there were some kids at one of the local high schools where I grew up playing Magic in the lunchroom, and the school, like, cracked down on it 
because parents complained because like you know in magic there's like the different colors of magic and there's like the black magic cards and and one of them uh was called like unholy magic or something like that and it had a like a inverted pentagram on it and so there were there were the kind of uh sort of hysterical uh allegations of uh you know that it's you know sort of like with dungeons and dragons that it's mm -hmm. promoting the occult and stuff like that so yeah that's that that was just, just just sort of another angle to the whole like man how stupid mm -hmm. how stupid can people be uh yeah off with their heads <laughs> i say all right so we actually had 17 topics uh <laughs> you know ready to discuss uh and we've we've made it through two of them so far uh so i think we might have to save some of these other ones for for another day um you know thanks everyone for listening uh, as I said, if you live in the New York area, you know, check out my Geeks Guide to the Galaxy NYC Facebook page. And if you live in the Lompoc area, check out the, the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy Lompoc page, <laughs> except that, you know, I'm the only person that would ever <laughs> go to anything here. So actually, that doesn't exist, so don't look for it. But so, yeah, you know, as, as always, we're sponsored by Audible.com. Uh, if you go to our website at geeksguideshow.com, there's a link you know, just click on any of the ads there and you'll go to a page where you can sign up for a free trial subscription and get one free audiobook. And it looks like just about everything that Jim Butcher has ever written is available there on audible.com. So, uh, you know, check out one of his, uh, check out one of his books. Yeah, actually, I listened to uh, Stormfront by Jim Butcher and it was read by James Marsters, who, uh, uh, who television fans might recognize as uh, Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and that actually is very well done. Um, although you might be surprised to learn that James Marsters is American, not British, um, you know, because he has a British accent on the show. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the other ways you can support us is uh, if you go to iTunes and you uh, look for the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, you can, if you leave a review or rating, that can help us out. Uh, how many reviews are we up to, Dave? 71. 71. So you could be number 72 or, or, or beyond. Uh, we wanted to get uh, 75 by the end of the year. Is that right? Is that what our goal? I thought it was 100 by the end of the year. Oh, okay. Well, we wanted to get 100 by the end of the year. So we have uh, we have uh, a bit more to go. And if you can help us reach that goal, that would be great. But yeah, if you just leave, you can leave a rating. You don't have to write a review. If you just leave a rating, that's fine too. But uh, reviews are welcome. Um, and then, of course, the other way you can support us is by going to io9 and leaving a comment on uh, this episode or one of our other episodes. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time when we'll be interviewing Richard Dawkins. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.